please take your copy of the Bible and open it up to the book of Galatians. The very last chapter, a matter of fact, of Galatians. Now, as you're finding the passage of Scripture there, let me, uh, let me ask some of the young ladies in the church here, maybe some, some young girls. Do you guys think this is a, a pretty flower arrangement? You do? Think that's a pretty flower arrangement? Any other young ladies give me their opinion? Is this a pretty flower arrangement? Yes, Sarah's kind of going, eh. You, can, you don't, don't worry about hurting my feelings. I just need to know. Is this a pretty flower arrangement? No, I, I wouldn't say it is either. There's a couple of semi-decent looking little bitty tiny flowers in this bunch of, well, what is this? What does it look like? Just like I went out into my yard and just grabbed a bunch of what? Weeds. Weeds. It just looks like a bunch of weeds. And, and basically, that's what it is. I actually came in with this this morning, just like this, and Olivia looked at me like, and uh, she said, I hope you're not giving that to mom. <laughs> no, no, it was for the, for, for the purpose of this little illustration here. You see, uh, a few, I guess a couple of months ago in spring, we went and bought some what we thought were wildflowers and little packages of wildflowers, and we, we tilled up the flower bed beside the house and spent hours pulling out all these weeds, and, and then we, we took these package of uh, what was wildflower seeds, at least what we thought were wildflower seeds, and just dumped it all in there and spread it around. We sowed seed into that ground, and then stuff just started coming up over the last couple of months, and to be honest with you, it just looks like a bunch of weeds. So far, there are very, very few flowers. There's hardly any. It's supposed to attract butterflies and bees and everything. Uh, all it's attracting, in my mind, is my anger because it's just weeds coming up everywhere. All, so that's why I went. I went out there and just grabbed a handful out of that flower bed, well, weed bed, and you have what you have here. So I'm convinced that whatever it was that was in that package, it was not what was pictured on the front of the package. Because the picture on the front of the package had all these beautiful flowers with butterflies all over it. And I'm convinced that is not what was inside of that package. Now maybe over time we'll begin to see more little flowers emerge. But right now it's just a bunch of weeds. Whatever we sowed into that ground, it wasn't, we're not reaping from the ground what we thought we had sown. We thought we had sown something beautiful and pleasant, and we're reaping something ugly. Now, I don't know if that's because the seeds that were in the package weren't actually right, or if we did something wrong, or if we didn't clear the ground right, but the fact of the matter is, we're not reaping what, at least what we thought we were sowing. But the fact of the matter is, those seeds didn't magically change in the middle of the night. Whatever we put in the ground is what is coming out, and apparently we spent hours planting weeds. Now, as we come to today's text, we know that the, the undeniable, unbreakable, immutable law of sowing and reaping in the natural realm, in God's physical universe, we know that that's a law, an unbreakable law. You can't, no farmer is going to go out into his field and plant wheat there, and then in the fall expect to reap corn. Okay, we know that that's an unbreakable, immutable law, but just as the law of sowing and reaping is an undeniable law in the physical universe, so too the law of sowing and reaping is an undeniable, immutable law in God's spiritual universe as well. It applies to the spiritual realm just as much as it applies to our physical, material, natural realm. And that's what today's text is all about. Really, the central thought of today's text, and today's text, by the way, is Galatians 6, 6 through 10, if I haven't already told you, the central thought of the text is verse 7. But on either side of that verse, God fleshes out what it means to sow and to reap in the spiritual realm. So please stand with me now as we read today's text, Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. I know I say this frequently, but we can't be reminded of it in reminded of it enough. We stand because we believe that this word that we're reading is God's infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient word, that it has power, that it functions like seed going into the heart, and it produces, it has power to produce. It's, it's an imperishable seed, and it has power to produce life in us. 
So Galatians 6, beginning in verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and I pray that you would do a work in this room through your word. Father, we don't pretend to think that anyone in this room is in and of himself able to understand your word the way it needs to be understood. And no one in this room is in and of himself able to teach or preach the word as it should be without your help. And so God, we pray that you would help us this morning, do a work in us this morning. Father, as with every sermon, Lord, I stand up here with, with knocking knees because I want to speak the word accurately. And especially today, Father, I pray, Father, that you would communicate your word clearly and keep me from saying anything incorrect. Father, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we come to Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, we are coming to sort of the second half of some bookends to this letter. So imagine the letter to the Galatians that Paul wrote having two bookends. The first bookend is in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, where Paul urges the churches of Galatia to resist false teachers who are spreading false gospel in the church. And now at the end of the letter, in chapter 6, verse 6, Paul is again talking about teachers. But this time he's urging the churches of Galatia to support true teachers who are teaching the true gospel in the church. And what was this false gospel that the false teachers were sowing in the Galatian churches? It was, it was the lie that man can be justified with God, justified before God, by doing good works. In the specific case of what was being spread there amongst the Galatians, a group called the Judaizers were teaching that one had to be circumcised and had to keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved, in order to be part of God's people. But Paul, as we saw in the letter, as we studied it verse by verse, Paul used the Old Testament scriptures themselves to tear apart the false teacher's arguments, proving that man is justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Now in chapter 3, Paul taught that salvation is a spiritual work of God, not a fleshly work of man. And in chapter 4, we saw that the one who believes in the true gospel has been set free. And then in chapter 5, we saw that this freedom does not mean that we are free to sin. Instead, we are taught that our spirit-wrought freedom actually empowers us to a new and holy way of living. A way of living that Paul called in Galatians 5, walking by the Spirit. Or later in Galatians 5, keeping in step with the Spirit. And so that brings me to what we studied last week in the first half of chapter 6, which was nothing more than a picture of what walking by the Spirit looks like. We saw that people who walk by the Spirit gently restore those who have been overtaken by sin. And we saw that those who walk by the Spirit generously bear one another's burdens. But I'll remind you that uh, such a walk, that type of spiritual walk, requires self-awareness, honest self-awareness, and humble self-examination. In Galatians 6.4 we read that, Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now this was, as we saw, not a call to sinful pride. 
Because Paul told us not to think too much of ourselves in that passage. So this isn't a call to sinful pride, but a recognition that we are not to compare ourselves to others and thereby base our confidence on how we, how we are, where our status is with God, based upon, based upon how we stack up to them. Rather, we are to understand that we are only who we are, that we are who we are, because of what Christ has done for us and is doing in us through the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, we read that for each one will have to bear his own load. And remember that the word load is not referring to the unbearable burdens of chapter 6, verse 2, but is a word that could be translated backpack or pack. And it simply refers to the responsibility that each Christian bears to build up the body of Christ. Each one of us who are members of the body of Christ have a responsibility, a pack that we are to use for the purpose of building up the body. The pack represents our time, our talents, and our treasures that God has entrusted to us. And we will be judged for how we use what God has given to us. And that takes us directly into today's text. Verses 6 through 10 will flesh out in even more detail what it means to carry our pack. What our spiritual responsibility is to the church. Now to help us grasp this, Paul shifts now to an agricultural metaphor that we've already alluded to this morning, the metaphor of sowing and reaping. So think of it this way. We've all been given, um, now this isn't the same seeds I use, but we've all been given like a little pack of seeds, all right? We've all been given a pack. Your pack is different than my pack. Your pack includes all that God has entrusted you with. And God expects you to sow those seeds well for the building up of the body of Christ. So really what we're talking about today is our responsibility. Our responsibility to invest in the church. Our responsibility to, to invest our time, our talents, and our treasure in the right manner and in the right things. So I'm going to use that word invest in my points this morning. And I see three things in today's text. I see a clear commandment, a strong admonishment, and a reassuring encouragement. So first, the clear commandment. We are given a clear commandment to invest in the ministry of the word. We are given a clear commandment to invest in the ministry of the word. Verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Quite simply, quite clearly, the passage is saying that one of the primary ways we sow spiritually into the church and, to, and one of the primary ways we bear the burdens of others is to intentionally support the ministry of the word. And the way we intentionally support the ministry of the word is to provide for those who feed us the word. Now I must agree with Martin Luther who said of this text, and I'm going to quote him. I must say I do not find much pleasure in explaining these verses. And let me just say, neither do I. And now I'm continuing to quote Martin Luther. If a minister preaches on money, he is likely to be accused of covetousness. Still, people must be told these things that they may know their duty to their pastor. Both Calvin and Luther, in their comments on this text, marvel at how people while still under the legalistic bondage of Rome's false gospel, would freely pour out their treasures to support Rome's opulent excesses and abuses. But then when those same people were freed from that bondage through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would carelessly neglect their responsibility to support God's ministers. Just as in Calvin and in Luther's day, we too live in an age where false teachers promoting man-centered false gospels openly fleece the people of God. Openly fleece ignorant people. Meanwhile, too many true teachers, teachers of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, too many go without basic needs being met. Paul is clear that the only teachers that are to be supported by the church are those who are teaching the right content. He says here, let the one who is taught the word... The word. Now, in the context of Galatians, how are we to understand the word? What does that mean? Does Paul simply mean the message of the cross? Or is Paul speaking more broadly, as in the word being the whole of Scripture? The answer is both. Paul doesn't distinguish between the two. 
Paul says this in regarding his message to the Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The word is Jesus Christ crucified. But then Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, referring to all of the Old Testament scriptures. You see, for Paul, there's no distinction between the simple message of the cross and the scriptures as a whole. That is because Paul sees Christ in all of scripture. So should we. Paul has a Christocentric understanding of the Bible. The true teacher of the word practices what Jesus said in John chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 24, which is that the whole Old Testament bears witness about him. So in this very epistle, Paul has preached the message of the cross, and he's preached it to us from Genesis, various different places in Genesis, from Leviticus, from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah, and from Habakkuk. You may not have noticed it, but Paul 16 different times in this letter refers to the Old Testament scriptures. 16 different times in Galatians. Paul quotes the Old Covenant scriptures to proclaim the New Covenant truth of the cross. The careful teacher of the word sees Christ in all of scripture and thus he painstakingly examines and explains how it all fits together. We see the painstaking nature of this type of teaching in the very word that Paul chooses for the word teach here, the Greek word he chooses. In verse 6, the word teach appears two times. Once in the passive voice, the one who is taught. This is the congregation receiving the teaching. And then the other time in the active voice, the one who teaches. And this word teach is not the usual Greek word for teach. Instead, it's the word katecheo, which transliterated may be a word that you recognize. It's the word catechize. This is the word that Paul, it's not the normal Greek word for teaching. It means much more than mere passing on of information and retention of facts. First, it means an authoritative type of teaching. The word literally means to sound forth, sound forth the truth. Secondly, this word teach, katecheo, it also implies a meticulous, arranged, and detailed approach to what is being taught. So the type of teaching spoken of here in this verse, by necessity of the very meaning of the word itself, entails a careful, systematic, sounding forth of God's word. And that type of teaching requires hard work. That is why Paul tells those of us who are taught to share all good things with the one who teaches. Because true biblical teaching requires labor, dedication, skill, and a lot of time. Ministers of the word are required to study the scriptures diligently. The Old Testament example for this is Ezra. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. It says this, that Ezra, Ezra set his heart, set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So ministers of the word are to study it diligently so they might speak it rightly. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightfully handling the word of truth. So the minister of the word studies it diligently, speaks it rightly, and he's to stand on it unwaveringly. 2 Timothy 4.2, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Study diligently. Speak rightly. Stand unwaveringly. And safeguard it vehemently. 2 Timothy 1.13 Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So we must see with the studying it, and the speaking it, and the standing on it, and the safeguarding it, we must see that a true ministry of the word, by its very nature, is hard and exhausting work. But a true ministry of the word should be, should be intensely longed for by the people of God. 1 Peter 2.2 2 says this, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And that pure spiritual milk, if you know the context of 1 Peter, is referring to the word of the gospel. Long for it. 
It is to be intensely longed for. And it is to be humbly received by the people of God. James 1.21. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It is to be intensely longed for. It is to be humbly received and is to be intentionally submitted to by the people of God. James 1.22, the very next verse. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Hang on to that. We'll talk about self-deception in a little bit. But for now, the word is to be intensely longed for. It is to be humbly received. It is to be intentionally submitted to. And thus, it is to be financially supported by the people of God. And back to today's text, Galatians 6, 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, those good things could certainly include things like encouragement and should include things like encouragement and prayer and practical help. But the primary meaning of that phrase is financial support, remuneration. This was the normal understanding of this Greek phrase, to share all good things. In Paul's day, it represented the duty that the pupil had to share and to provide for the teacher's needs, even in the secular arena. But even more important and relevant to today's text, when we look at the corpus, the whole body of Paul's writings, the only other times that Paul employs the metaphor of sowing and reaping, he does so in the context of how we use our money. When you want to understand what Paul means when he gets into, and maybe it seems unclear to you, what does he mean when he says sowing and reaping? I think in today's text, he broadens it a bit, but the only other two times he uses this metaphor of sowing and reaping is 1 Corinthians 9, which I read earlier at the very beginning of the service, which is talking about using one's financial resources to support gospel ministers. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, which is a text about using one's financial, um, uh, financial means to support the poor. Sowing and reaping. Now some people think that having paid pastors is a negative byproduct of our professionalized culture. But one of the remarkable things about this passage is that Galatians is one of the earliest books we have, written probably around A.D. 47. So from the beginning, there was an understanding in the church that preachers and teachers of the word were to be provided for financially. This wasn't something that developed over time. It was there from the start. Matter of fact, Jesus, Jesus taught it in Luke 10, verse 7, regarding the preachers of the good news that he sent out. He said this, the laborer deserves his wages. But in case you think that's unclear, Paul quotes Jesus' words in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, when Paul speaks there in 2 Timothy, or in, in uh, 1 Timothy, about those who labor in preaching and teaching, the word labor means to work to the point of exhaustion. Those who toil over the ministry of the word are therefore to be compensated for their hard work. And though Paul refused to insist on his own remuneration, he nonetheless taught that those who preach the gospel are to be cared for financially. That passage that I read earlier, 1 Corinthians 9, 7-14, it's a detailed passage. There's a lot that can be said about why you are to support your pastors from that passage alone. But let me just remind us of verse 14. And it says this, In the same way the Lord commanded, not suggested, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The church is to sow financially into the life of those who preach the gospel. The church is not primarily to pay for a visionary. The church is not to pay for an organizer. The church is definitely not to be paying for an entertainer. The church only pays men who work hard at the preaching and teaching of the word of God. That's what the church is to pay for. The church is to pay for one who carefully and courageously feeds the word of God to his people. And the church is to do so joyfully, not begrudgingly. That is the implication of the word share in this verse. The word is the verbal form of the word koinonia, which is usually translated for us fellowship. And this is the verbal form of that word koinonia, and it, and it refers to a deeply joyful sharing of one's goods. It is a joyful endeavor, not some reluctant, suspicious, grim responsibility. 
God does not honor reluctant, grim, suspicious responsibilities. He honors joyful giving, according to 2 Corinthians. And so, that is what is implied here. Those who understand the spiritual benefit of the word are those who joyfully use their resources to pay the ministers of the word, and it makes sense. For this is spiritual sowing. Holy Spirit-empowered sowing. And so, and it's spiritual sowing, Holy Spirit-empowered to support the Spirit's word going forth, which should produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Joy. Joy. Now, this joyful sharing is a, is a two-way street. Those who teach should joyfully share spiritual blessings by preparing and teaching the word well. You don't want a pastor who, who preaches and teaches because he just feels like he has to, but that he joyfully wants to. So those who teach are joyfully to share spiritual blessings by preparing and teaching the word well. And those who are taught are to joyfully share their material blessings by supporting and supplying their teachers well. This concept of material blessings reaped from spiritual sowing is seen in 1 Corinthians 9, that passage we mentioned earlier. Let me just quote verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? That was Paul's question. And then in Romans chapter 15, verse 27, Paul is urging the Gentile believers to give to the Jewish brethren who are in need. And he says this, For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So Paul teaches this sowing of spiritual blessings, reaping of material goods. Now, obviously these passages can be misused by all sorts of pastors who are seeking ill-gotten gain. Scriptures te teach clearly against that as well. And there are many today I, I saw, I've, I've shared this story with some of you before, but it was early on in my ministry, and I was flipping through some quote-unquote Christian channels and came to a teacher who was proclaiming that you can get out of your credit card debt if you will just call in and sow a seed Sow a seed of $1,000 into my ministry on that very credit card, and God will wipe out the credit card debt. That's right. Yeah, what? Evil. Absolute evil. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not a preacher of the word. That is a false teacher who's fleecing the flock. If you're walking in the Spirit, this means that you are being taught the Spirit-inspired word, and if you're being taught the Spirit-inspired word, then you should sow to the Spirit by supporting the one who teaches the Word. But we know that few things, few things expose the spiritual condition of our hearts more clearly than the way we prioritize and use money. This is why Jesus speaks so much about money. As in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The person who does not joyfully, joyfully give to the ministry of the word reveals a fleshly and selfish heart that is unwilling to bear the burden of the ministry and that consequently cares little about the health of the whole body. Do you understand when you sow into the ministry of the word, you're actually blessing the whole body. But the person who does joyfully give to the ministry of the word reveals a spiritual and sacrificial heart happily, that happily desires to bear the burdens of ministry and that consequently cares much about the health of the body. Let me say that I praise God. So far, as, so far as I know, so far as I know, the majority of the people in this church joyfully obey Galatians 6.6. 6, and for that, I praise God. And I am very thankful for this church body. This church body provides for two pastors of the word. It's an awesome thing. Yet, I am not ignorant. I know that in any church... There are some who willfully ignore Galatians 6.6 6 and the many other texts of its nature. So as in any church, some are supporting the work while others are coasting. There are some in here who are shamed by the widow of Luke 21, whose heart of faith was laid bare as she gave all that she had. And though I am uncomfortable teaching this, and some of you are uncomfortable with me teaching this, 
let me say this. I would not be a teacher worthy of my pay if I didn't preach Galatians 6, 6, as well as every other text of the Scriptures. If I just skipped over it, I would not be a teacher worthy of my pay if I didn't warn you that failing to sow into the ministry of the Word is spiritually dangerous ground to stand on. And so Paul does that very thing next. He warns us in the next verses. So we are not only given a clear commandment to invest in the ministry of the Word, we are also given a strong admonishment or warning to invest with weighty discernment. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now Paul started off this section talking about sowing into the ministry of the Word. In the following verses, I think he's going to widen that concept a little bit. But regardless of the narrow application of the ministry of the Word or the wider application to come, Paul wants us to have blood earnest seriousness about the laws of sowing and reaping. And we see that seriousness in Paul's words, do not be deceived. That's an attention-grabbing phrase used by Paul only three other times in all of his writings. Okay, those, those two of those other times is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Ephesians 5, 6, where Paul gives that warning as a wake-up call to remind the reader, to let the reader know that their eternal destiny is in danger is in peril. And then later in 1 Corinthians 15, he uses that phrase to warn the church against associating with false teachers. So regardless, however you want to look at it, Paul is very, very serious here when he says, do not be deceived. Satan is already speaking deceptive lies into the ears of some in this room right here to try to dismiss the things I just said from Galatians 6. And that deception sometimes comes in the form of justification, excuses, Paul says, do not be deceived. We dare not think we can intentionally, consistently, unrepentantly sow to the flesh and expect to reap eternal benefits. Do not be deceived. Paul is reminding of us of our tremendous capacity for self-deception. Paul knows the human heart, and the human heart can deceive itself into thinking that it is engaged in spiritual things when in reality it's only driven by fleshly desire. Our Lord warned us of such self-deception. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. By the way, by saying Lord twice, they were saying they were serious about his lordship. So get this. These are serious people. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And how is the will of God revealed to us? Through the scriptures including scriptures like Galatians 6.6. 6. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There is a way to do spiritual-looking things, churchy things, and they, in the end, they're nothing more than lawlessness. Lawlessness. There's a way to serve in the church that ends up being lawlessness if it's not from a heart that's driven by the Spirit. The human heart has an endless capacity for self-deception. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, let me just say this. The unregenerate heart, the person who's not a believer is totally given over to self-deception. But even a true believer who has been given a new heart still has remaining deception which manifests itself in the various passions of the flesh and sins that we battle against. If you think that's not true, that Christians can be deceived, then you, my friend, are in a state of self-deception so deep that you cannot even begin to grasp the nature of the human heart. Let me say that again, and I believe it with all my heart. If you think that it's not true that Christians can be deceived, then you are in a state of self-deception so deep that you cannot even begin to grasp the biblical teaching of the heart. But I can hear the objection now. Oh, you're just speaking from your Calvinist reformed presuppositions. You are such a pessimist. If the human heart is truly in the condition you say it is, 
then who can truly self-examine themselves? Who can truly be self-aware as you spoke to us about last week, Steve? To which I say, you're right. You cannot discern your own heart. That's why Jeremiah 17 continues with verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Only God can test the heart. And so how are we to test our own hearts? How are we to examine ourselves? How are we to do what I said last week in last week's sermon? Here's the answer. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the divisions of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning, listen to this, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The means God uses to reveal our hearts to ourselves is his word. So if Galatians 6, 6 felt a little bit piercing this morning, good. It's doing its job. That's the design of the word. And thus the ministry of the word, the preaching and the teaching of the word is vital to the church. If you walk away from it, if you refuse to submit to it, if you neglect to support it, you run the risk of deceiving yourself. So do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Boy, if Paul, he takes it up a notch here. He talks about us, our own self-deception, and then he talks about mocking the living God. Just hearing the word mock and God in the same sentence should cause every single one of us to shake a little bit in our boots. God is not mocked, literally. It means turn up your nose to God. It means to show contempt and derision toward God. And here's the insult. That men and women who claim to be his children can sow to the flesh, can refuse to sow to the spirit, can continue to sow to the flesh with their time and with their talent and with their treasures, and then assume that everything will just be fine. God says that is a mockery. That is an absolute mockery of the living God for you to take what God has entrusted you with, sow it into your own fleshly desires, and then think everything's just going to be hunky-dory. If you are living like that, you are in a dangerous place. You are in a very dangerous place because we're not just talking about the comfort level of your life. This text talks about eternal destiny. God will not be mocked. Paul is saying that such an attitude is an insult, a mockery towards God, and he will not let it stand. God will not be treated like a gullible grandfather or like an absent landlord. He sees all, he weighs all, and his justice and his holiness will prevail. For, for, what does he say? He gives us that immutable, unbreakable law for whatever one sows, that he also will reap. As I said earlier, the law of sowing and reaping is an unbreakable law in the physical realm, and it's an unbreakable law in the spiritual realm. The Bible speaks of spiritual sowing and reaping in so many places. In the Old Testament, that theme shows up many times in Proverbs. We see it as well in Psalms. We see it in Jeremiah. We see it in Hosea. It's in the text that Jeff read earlier. And as we've already seen, it is clearly taught in the New Testament as well. For example, James 3.18 says that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you want to live a holy and righteous life, then be a peacemaker in the church. Sow peace into the church. It's the unbreakable law of sowing and reaping. You can no more step out of the window of a 10-story building and think that you can avoid the consequences of trying to ignore the law of gravity than you can step outside of God's truth, God's revealed will, his word, and think that you can avoid the consequences of sin. Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. Every single one of us in here, myself included. John Stott says this, Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we read pornographic literature, every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing and sowing and sowing to the flesh. 
Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they do not reap holiness. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow, end quote. And according to Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Holiness is not optional for the Christian life. To walk by the Spirit is holiness. To keep in step with the Spirit is holiness. To sow to the Spirit is holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 is very clear. And so just as there's two ways to walk in Galatians 5, there are two ways to sow here in chapter 6. Look at verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And I want to remind you that in Galatians, Paul speaks of two different ways that we can give in to the flesh. One is by trusting our own flesh to save us through works righteousness. That's the legalistic ditch. We talked about that path, the legalistic ditch. So the legalist gives into the flesh in that regard. He trusts in his own flesh. But the one who thinks that faith in Jesus Christ just sort of excuses him and gives him license to do whatever he wants to do in the flesh without willfully battling sin and willfully pursuing holiness, that's the other ditch. That's another way to give into the flesh. So you can sow to both. If you look away from the cross and put your confidence in your religious works, your own devotion, your own ability to do what God has commanded, then you are sowing to the flesh. But if you excuse your sin, apathetically saying this, because you're forgiven in Christ, I can just keep on doing this, you too are sowing to the flesh. Young adults, you have your attention for a second. You may hear this phrase, you may be told this, that this time of your life is your time to go sow your wild oats, meaning it's your time to do what you feel like doing, flirt with immorality, be a little rebellious, and unfortunately, many in the church will tell you that if you're saved, if you ask Jesus into your heart at some point, yeah, really, that's no big deal. God's already forgiven you, right? But the Bible says such a way of thinking is absolute foolishness. For if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. You will reap destruction. Be careful, young adults. To quote another famous Hosea passage about sowing and reaping, Hosea 8, 7, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Be careful trying to put your new sails of independence into the seemingly harmless breezes of this fallen world. You may soon find yourself being torn apart in a hurricane. A hurricane of depravity. Sowing to the flesh, according to this text, will reap corruption. Make no doubt, this is a warning here. This word corruption refers to a putrefying corpse. A dead body, maggots, decaying. This is the corruption. And this is not an, an image of a backslidden believer. This is an image of a damned fool. Someone that's been damned to hell. Paul is speaking about damnation here, which is even made even more clear in the Parallel statement, verse 8. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Eternal life. How we sow is extremely serious. If you use your pack, if you use your pack that I spoke of earlier, your time, your talents, and your treasure to consistently and willfully and unrepentantly sow to your own flesh, your own desires, you will reap from the flesh the only thing that your flesh can give you, and that is hell. But if you use your pack, your time, your talents, your treasure, and your resources to consistently and willfully and humbly sow to the Spirit, you will reap from the Spirit what only the Spirit can give you, and that is eternal life. And this is not works salvation, friends. This is not Paul. Paul is not contradicting what he so clearly laid out in this entire book. This is simply the law of sowing and reaping working itself out in the human heart. The heart that is born again, that places all of its hope in Christ alone, cannot continually and unrepentantly sow to the flesh. It cannot. It cannot do it. For the spirit in them will not allow it. So we are to take inventory of our sowing. We are to look at ourselves. We are to take inventory of our sowing because it serves to reveal the genuineness of our faith. It serves to reveal the condition of our hearts. And as always, there are two ways to live. There are two families on this earth, two people. There are two gates to enter, 
There are two paths to walk. There are two ways to sow. What is yours? I urge you this morning to take inventory of your pack and see what it is you are sowing. And if you see that you are merely sowing to the flesh, repent. Turn to Christ in faith. Turn to the only one who could save you from God's wrath. Turn to the only one who lived the perfect life that you cannot live. Turn to him in faith and the forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins. And the spirit of the living God will do a transformative work in you and will reorient your desires and change the way you see all it is that God has entrusted you with. And now my final point this morning, some of you may be looking at the clock thinking, okay, two points down, one to go, it's 12. My final point this morning is my conclusion, okay? And it's directed to those who, who are believers, those who have the spirit, those who are sowing to the spirit. So first, we are given a clear commandment to invest in the ministry of the word. We are given a strong admonishment to invest with weighty discernment. And finally, we are given a reassuring encouragement to invest with patient confidence. Verse 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Grow weary, it was a word often used to refer to the exhaustion a farmer might feel after all of his toil. Now, it's a, it's a tiredness that results from hard work. So we are not to grow weary of doing good. We're not, to, we're not to get tired of doing good and stop doing it. We're to keep on going. You see how the Apostle Paul has now broadened the scope of sowing. Into the, he started with sowing into the ministry of the Word, but now that's certainly part of what the doing good here is. But I think this also is a more general call for doing good to our neighbor. We are not to grow weary in doing good. Why? Because we believe in the immutable law of sowing and reaping. For in due season, the text says, we will reap if we do not give up. When you sow to the Spirit, it is never in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Keep working, brothers and sisters. Keep sowing into the life of the church. Keep sowing into the life of your brothers and sisters. Keep sowing into the life of the community. Keep at it. You may feel right now like it's time to give up. The Apostle Paul says, don't. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. Your labor is not in vain. Unfortunately, our consumerist attitude in the church leaves many wanting to get something before they'll give anything. If the church has this, or does this for my family, then we'll invest. If the pastor will just change this or stop doing that, then we'll invest. Do you see, that's a desire to reap before you sow. God will not honor that. Friends, the church and the pastor are sinners who will let you down, but you sow regardless because God will never let you down. You will reap in due season. In due season is referring to God's sovereign timing. God determines when the harvest is to come due, not us. We are to have patient confidence that our God sees all and justly rewards those who sow to the Spirit. But he does it in his timing, not ours. Some of the good harvest that God has for your spiritual sowing may not come to you in this lifetime. And that's okay. Oh, for all of us to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So let's wrap this up. Verse 10. So then, so then, in light of all that Paul has said regarding sowing and reaping, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and that's referring to, to everybody, those inside the body of Christ and those outside of the body of Christ. Let us do good to everyone. But then he says this, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It act, literally, it's the household of the faith. Not just some generic faith. It's, it's belief in the, the passed down, once for all faith delivered to the saints. Household of the faith. We are a family. We are God's family. We are a household. And those, according to, to what um, Paul says in, in 1 Timothy, those who do not care for their own family are worse than unbelievers. It brings us full circle to investing in the ministry of the word. John Brown, in his exposition of Galatians, said this on this verse. Quote, every poor and distressed man has a claim on me for pity, and if I can afford it, for active exertion 
and, and for pecuniary relief. But the poor Christian has a far stronger claim on my feelings, my labors, and my property. He is my brother, equally interested as myself in the blood and love of the Redeemer. And I expect to spend an eternity with him in heaven. He is the representative of my unseen Savior. And he considers everything done to his poor afflicted ones as done to himself. For a Christian to be unkind to a Christian is not only wrong, it is monstrous. So how about you? Are you sowing into people in general? But are you sowing especially into the people of God? Into the church that you are covenanted with? Into the ministry of the word? If you are an indwelled person who is indwelled by the Spirit and are walking in step with the Spirit, you will sow to the Spirit by investing in the Spirit's people, the church. The question for all of us is this. If we take inventory of our lives in light of and in power of the Word of God preached today, if we take inventory of our lives, what will we see that we have been sowing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we conclude the service with a time of response, there is not a single soul in this room that does not need to confess sin. And there is not a single soul in this room who is not susceptible to self-deception. So Holy Spirit, we pray that your word would function like a surgeon's scalpel today. Cut deep, cut hard, convict, and then change us, Lord. As that scalpel comes out, it heals. Reorient our desires. Reorient our passions. Help us to be faithful with all it is that you've entrusted to us. Help us each look at our pack, our gifts, our passions, our financial resources. Help us to look at our pack and ask ourselves if we are sowing in the manner that Paul speaks of in today's text. And Father, for the unbeliever in here this morning, Lord, I pray that the word would cut to the heart. I pray, Lord, that as they heard Jeremiah 17, 9, that they would desire, and their desire can only come from you, that they would desire not to be deceived by their own heart, but instead that they would seek you, the one who can lay their heart bare, the one who can draw them to himself, the one who can give them repentance and faith. I pray that they would call on the name of Jesus this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.